These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. As we finally let the clock run forward from the year 2000 BCE, having spent last episode getting oriented in our new post-Sumer Amorite-dominated world, we find that though history is progressing, we have astonishingly few details about what is happening. This isn't for lack of sources. We probably have as much or more from this particular period than any other time in the Bronze Age, but it almost seems as if scholars simply haven't prioritized this period, possibly because the the other historical eras on either side of it are just more famous and possibly more interesting. But all the more reason, in my mind, to dig into the Isan Larsa period and see what kind of stories we can uncover. Our tale today begins in Isim, just after the death of the merchant king Ishbi Era. His son Shu takes the throne with a minimum of fuss around the year 1984. Of course, some sources will tell you he comes to power in the year 1920, but that's because there are two warring chronologies in historical literature. The middle chronology is what has been used by this show up until now, but there is also a shorter chronology that, for this period of history, pushes everything 64 years earlier. Honestly, both seem to be defended by reasonable people, and I am profoundly unqualified to judge between them. And so this show has been using middle chronology, and will continue to do so unless I see a good reason to change. In any case... For the ten years that Shu Ilishu ruled, he was, at least publicly, concerned only with religious observance, devoting eight of his ten-year names to acts of piety, with the first year being dedicated to his coronation and his sixth year being dedicated to an expansion of the city wall of Isan, though this too was made pious by being named in honor of both the king and the god Ishtar. Surely, the political situation was tenuous and unstable, but he either managed his vassal kings completely through diplomacy, or simply declined to celebrate his military achievements for whatever reason, though that would be deeply strange compared to other Bronze Age monarchs. We actually have a fair bit of documentation from his rule. The Cuneiform Digital Library Initiative has 90 decently sized entries from his reign, but most are, at least publicly, untranslated. And those that are, are either religious hymns that tell us nothing about the man himself aside from his piety, or they are very formulaic inscriptions. Still, even those little formulaic inscriptions tell us some interesting things. Mighty Man or Mighty King shows up frequently among his titles, indicating that he either thought of himself as personally quite strong or at least wanted to be thought of that way, though no feats of strength survive to our time. King of Sumer and Akkad is pretty standard, since though he didn't control all the region, he definitely inherited a broad hegemony from his father, and was at least the first among kings in the region. Similarly, beloved of the gods is a must for any pious ruler. But we also have titles that indicate a certain ambition in Shu Ilishu's heart, an ambition not really matched by his recorded deeds. Most notably, he has the divine mark on his name right in the first year name, indicating that he ascended to godhood as soon as he took kingship. This will be more and more common as time goes on, but it is still interesting to note which kings do and don't take godhood. 
More subtly, the patron goddess of Isin is Nintinuga, the goddess of healing, but of the pieties that survive from his time, none of them are dedicated to her. Instead, we have year names devoted to Nana, god of the moon, Shamash, god of the sun, Ishtar, goddess of love and war, Ningal, who is wife of Nana and mother of Shamash and Ishtar, Ninurta, god of hunting, personal heroism, and agriculture, and an extensive hymn to Nurgle, god of plagues, the underworld, and inflicting death upon enemies. Nintanuga, on the other hand, had been a major god in the early dynastic period, but had since fallen in rank a bit to become a bit of a middle-rank deity. Still respectable, but a bit like the legacy rock bands that used to go on tour in Japan 20 years after their prime. Good enough for the backwater that Isin used to be, but not enough for what Shu Ilishu wanted his city to become. Most indicative of this, however, is that while he ruled from Isin, he never claimed the title King of Isin, preferring instead either King of his lands or King of Ur. It seems his home city was simply too provincial for him to be properly proud of it. Still, he definitely did the work to improve the city with the usual building projects that we've come to expect from kings of his stature. Also, we know that whatever its reputation, Isin was large enough to be hosting trade ships from Meluha, which is probably the ancient name for the Indus Valley civilization in modern-day Pakistan and India. Most fascinating of all, we have a cylinder seal in which Shu Ilishu claims to be able to translate the language of Meluha, though the Museum Archive webpage says very little about this particular artifact and seems to believe that Shu Ilishu was an administrator. Perhaps we're looking at an administrator who happened to share the king's name. Perhaps we're looking at Shu Ilishu when he was merely a prince under his father. And perhaps the museum is simply confused and failing to identify a fellow who is, in truth, a rather obscure king. But either way, it suggests that trade into Isin was substantial enough to be a major hub of international trade, and if we do identify this translator as the king, then it would suggest that his reign was peaceful and focused on religion because he was a fairly bookish character, intent on study and worship more than the management of a kingdom. And sometimes, that's exactly what a kingdom needs. Shu Ilishu dies, probably of natural causes, after a decade of rule, and is succeeded by his son Idin Dagon in 1975 BCE. Idin Dagon continues more or less in the same vein as his father, though a little bit more in every direction, though that may just because we have slightly more translated fragments from his 21 years. In his reign, we can a bit more clearly see the diplomatic side of things. He continues the long-standing practice of appointing family members to the high priestess positions of temples around the land, and he also concludes a marriage alliance with Anshan, the chief eastern city of the Elamites. On the religious front, much is the same. He continues to build temples and great artifacts for the gods, including a great throne dais for the accounting office of the Temple of Nana, he also composes, or perhaps has composed in his honor, even more surviving religious hymns, and he takes up the mantle of godhood. 
Like his father, he seems to have been fairly intelligent, or at least wished to be seen that way, since in his surviving royal praise poem, he places his skillful rulership, eloquence, and breadth of knowledge as his chief virtues, only briefly claiming to be strong in battle. It seems that perhaps after all these generations of warfare and the recent Amorite invasions, the land is exhausted and concerned with nothing more than religion and rebuilding, both of which he continues to make a key component of his administration. There are still battles to be fought, and we have a few fragmentary letters from his various generals about assorted campaigns against the ever-present Amorite threat. And at some point late in his reign, it appears the holy city of Nippur is briefly conquered and must be retaken, but the king himself is no longer always at the forefront of battle in this era, preferring instead to stay in the capital and issue commands. That capital may be enjoying an improved reputation, since we actually have records of Idan Dagon claiming among his titles King of Isin, though maybe we just have more surviving documentation and there was no real shift here. The most significant thing we have from Idan Dagon's peaceful reign is a hymn which appears to describe the ritual of sacred marriage between the king and the goddess Ishtar. This is a cult ceremony which would have occurred each year with most major kings and was meant to ensure a number of things, like the king's status as favored among the gods, the fertility of the land and people for the coming year, and to demonstrate the wealth of the king by the size of the wedding feast he holds. This ceremony had actually been going on since at least early dynastic times, but this is the first good example of what the ceremony actually looked like, and it's likely an indicator for what a normal wedding would have looked like, though, of course, this one would have had much, much more wealth and ceremony. The ritual begins with the king singing the praises of Ishtar, which is pretty standard. The Mesopotamians seem to be continuously praising the gods if their religious literature is anything to go by. One wonders how they had time for anything else. Interestingly, Ishtar seems to be an actual person in these events, likely a high priestess selected to play a role for the ceremony, though it isn't clear at all if the people watching the show would believe the woman on the dais to be a high priestess, or if they thought the goddess herself was incarnate before them. In any case, between these first verses, the chorus is, her rising is that of a warrior, which is another reason a king would ritually marry Ishtar to confirm his martial virtue in the eyes of the warrior goddess. In the second verse, Ishtar receives the symbol of Enlilship and kingship from her father Ea, god of wisdom, and takes a seat next to An, acting as co-ruler of the heavens with An, Enlil, and Ea. It's unclear just how much of this particular verse is just praise of the goddess, or if they actually acted out this as part of the ritual. Next comes a parade, while Ishtar sits in her throne and a fancy marching band plays before her. Next come a group of male prostitutes, who parade before her and then do up her hair real fancy-like. Then the king comes along with the greatest of wise women, whoever that is, possibly a magic woman of some sort. Then up would come drummers armed with sword and spear. Next comes the general audience, 
probably a whole bunch of nobles, dressed in finery with men on the right and women on the left, and holding some sort of colored cords, though what they're doing with them is unclear. The text says it's some sort of competition, but it isn't spelled out for us in much detail. Next come the youths of the court, also dressed quite nicely, each carrying a sword or dagger stained with blood, symbolizing both her love and war aspects. At this point, the party is quite lovely, and Lady Ishtar is sitting pretty before a bunch of pretty people as numerous as sheep. Finally, as the evening comes and the star Venus rises in the sky, which is Ishtar's star, everyone stops to bathe. All the animals of the world apparently take this moment to bow down to Lady Ishtar, and then all the young men take pleasure in their wives. It isn't clear whether people go home to do this or if there's simply a massive festival of love in the temple. Both have been claimed by later sources. After the party, there is a nighttime feast. The hymn discusses Ishtar's power to render judgment on the good and the evil, but it isn't clear if this is part of the ceremony or simply one of her powers being praised. The feast is accompanied by incense and endless praising of the goddess. All kinds of nice fruits and cheeses come out for dessert, along with date syrup, cakes, wine, honey, and beer. Once the party begins to wind down, Ishtar and the king retire deeper into the palace. Being the New Year celebration, it is a new moon sometime in mid-March. This is just how the Mesopotamian calendar worked. And so the consummation has to get done in the night during the transition from one year to the next. Ishtar washes her groin, then washes the king's groin, and they pour scented oils all over the room, which is already covered with incense and cedar. Then, as the hymn puts it, Ishtar makes him rejoice with her holy thighs on the bed. Then, in the morning, there's another feast laid out and a cacophony of singing and drumming and musical instruments. Then there's more praise and good fortune for the year, and the ceremony comes to a close amid a party. Idin Dagen is king for 21 such rituals before passing and leaving the throne to his son, Ishmi Dagen. He will rule for 18 years in much the same way his father and grandfather had. He will claim the godhood and publish a tremendous number of hymns that still survive to this day, the most of any king from this period or at least the most that we've recovered. One hymn is even written in praise of a chariot that he had constructed to honor Enlil, which will actually feature as a key source when we get to the military side of things because it shows just how chariots have been changing since the pre-Akkadian period. He has a love song that is also a hymn to Ishtar, in which lovemaking is compared to butter churning, with the word churn churn repeated frequently, making it one of the less arousing erotic poems I've ever come across. We also have a hymn to the city of Nippur, as well as evidence that he sponsored large building projects in the temples there, but this masks a deeper rot at the heart of his little empire. I would like to tell you that three generations of essentially peaceful builder kings has brought Mesopotamia to unrivaled prosperity, and that their wisdom is universally recognized as a beneficial force in the region. But that 
is not the case in an era that values strength and martial virtue so highly. Most historians suspect that if the official records record few victories for this period, it is because there were few victories won by Issen. And though it remains wealthy and undoubtedly this period of calm and rebuilding has been valuable for the whole region, the city is by now definitely in decline as a political power in the region. Literally all of Ishmi Dagan's year names after his coronation are about appointing priests or constructing artifacts like maces and chariots. This is strong indication that he had no greater accomplishments to his name. Another good indication of this is that we have three royal praise poems dedicated to himself, but in all three the accomplishments are thin on the ground. He was apparently proud that he could read and write following the somewhat bookish trend of his forefathers and claimed to be a good runner in his youth. Crucially, with regards to the military matters, he claims to have crushed the bandits of the land, but only claims to have battled against the rebels, never claiming to have defeated them. It is, in fact, almost certainly in this period that much of his empire falls away, critically with the city of Kish revolting, possibly also Kazalu, among other places, especially the northern Akkadian region, reducing the region over which Issan can plausibly claim hegemony. Perhaps it is this that spurs Ishmi Dagan to patronize Nippur so heavily, since that city is the ceremonial key to claiming kingship over Sumer, and perhaps less than half of the cities are still truly in submission to Issan at this point. And, in fact, if we go ahead and kill off this do-nothing king, we get a much clearer picture of daily life in the city of Issan when we reach his successor. Lipid Ishtar takes the throne in 1935, and in his second year, he drafts a series of laws, some of which are reforms and some of which are likely only restatements of previous laws. For his reign in general, things seem to be pretty much the same as the last few kings, claiming godhood appears to by now be standard practice in this court, and his year names record the usual mix of building projects and religious obligations, though we also see the first military year name in three generations, in which he repels an Amorite assault rather late in his reign, though we have no more details than that. And while he doesn't appear to arrest the slow decline of Issen, he doesn't accelerate it either, at least not directly that we can see. Though he may not have had many solid accomplishments, we do get a pair of hilariously arrogant poems in praise of himself. I'm not really sure what to make of this, since royal self-praise is a well-established genre, but some of this stuff seems a bit more extravagant than usual. Let me read you some of it. I am Lipit Ishtar, the son of Enlil. From the moment I lifted my head like a cedar sapling, I have been a man who possesses strength in athletic pursuits. As a young man, I grew very muscular. I am a lion in all respects, having no equal. I am a gaping dragon, a source of great awe for the soldiers. I am like the Anzu bird, peering about in the heart of the mountains. I am a wild bull whom nobody dare oppose in its anger. I am a bison, sparkling with beautiful eyes, having a lapis lazuli beard. 
I am well liked by all with my kind eyes and friendly mouth. I lift people's spirits. I have a most impressive figure, lavishly endowed with beauty. I have lips appropriate for all words. As I lift my arms, oh, I have beautiful fingers. I am a very handsome young man, fine to admire. And anyone who makes this their online dating profile will get so many imaginary internet points. But Lipidishtar isn't done yet. I'm Lipidishtar, king of the land. I'm the good shepherd of the black-headed people. I'm the foremost in the foreign countries and exalted in the land. I am a human god, the lord of numerous people. Shamesh imbued me, the man of his heart, with great awesomeness. I am the perfection of kingship. I'm Lipidishtar, Enlil's son. I am he who makes an abundant crop grow, the life of the land. I am the provider of the gods. I pray in all humility. I am he who speaks friendly words to appease Enlil. I am he who is ever praying, bestowing many things. I am perfect for the city. I am one who always hurries, but whose knees never tire. I the king, I'm like pounding waves in battle. Girded in manliness, I never loosen my harness. I am he who sharpens his dagger. In battle I flash like lightning, a firm foundation, I repulse the troops. I am the king that makes justice prominent. May my name be called on in all foreign lands. I am Lipidishtar, Enlil's son. It is sweet to praise me. Again, it's hard to tell exactly what to make of this. It's not like the Epic of Gilgamesh was short on praise for its subject as well, but this feels to me to be a step up in sheer self-congratulation, that it becomes almost comical. This leaves me without a transition into what I really wanted to focus on for this episode, so here we go. Lipidishtar had two main impacts on history, one of which will be his military defeats, which will be discussed next episode, and his law code, which tells us quite a lot about conditions in his little empire at this moment in time. The code opens with a preface, which the historians love because it gives so much context to the document. Crucially, he gives a listing of the major cities that are still subject to Isim, which at the same time show us that his empire has been reduced pretty much just to the southern bit of the Euphrates River, with Ur, Nippur, Uruk, and the mostly abandoned husk of the city of Eridu, though the temple was still operating despite the drastic decline of the city. Some big names, to be sure, and likely omitting a fair number of the region's smaller towns, but lacking pretty much any cities on the Tigris or in the north, despite still claiming the title King of Sumer and Akkad. He then announces that Already, in separate pronouncements, he has eased the labor burden placed on the holy city of Nippur, quite possibly to keep this crucial city from simply walking away and giving its vassalage to one of the many other players in the region. After he announces with pride an empire which should perhaps be announced with a bit of humility, we have a complex and sadly damaged passage that tells us how much labor each household is obligated to provide to the state each year. 
a standard household with a single male patriarch or with multiple cohabiting brothers owes 70 days out of the year. But we've lost some lines that probably tell us about reduced rates for less fortunate households. But honestly, every time I see the kind of tax rates commonly levied in this period, I'm absolutely amazed. Like, I get upset when I do my taxes each year, or when I see the withholding on my pay stub. But then you see, these guys are commonly taxed half to two-thirds of their produce each year. Then to have to serve 70 days for some politician building a wall in a desert, and it's just incredible. Anyway... Then we get to the laws themselves. Each of them follows a very clear and standard form of if condition, then consequence, which is a flexible enough structure and was apparently used to aid in memorization. Remember, this is still a primarily oral culture, even for the lawyers and courts. The very first surviving law shows us that state-imposed price controls were in common usage at the time, setting a price of either 1,800 or 2,400 silas of grain in exchange for a two-year oxen rental, depending on whether the ox was hitched in the stressful rear of the team or in the easier front or middle positions. One sila, by the way, is approximately half a kilogram, while a shekel is approximately eight grams a shekel being the base unit of currency, which in this period of time should not be thought of as an actual coin, but just a weight of silver. We then get a single sentence, if a man dies without male offspring, an unmarried daughter shall be his heir, which tells us quite a lot about gender relations, both in terms of the subordinate role of women, but also that women were capable of owning property and acting as legal persons in this period, though only in the absence of any men. While there is rampant misogyny in other parts of Akkadian culture, Lipidishtar's code has a number of provisions that push, not really towards equality, but at least away from the worst excesses of the Bronze Age. There are more economic laws regarding rentals, such as if a man rents a boat and it sinks, the renter must replace the boat. Or if a man rents out a plot of land to plant on, then doesn't complete the planting, he must give the rest of the land to someone willing to plant on the rest of the land, protecting landlords from lazy renters, since a landlord would likely have taken a percentage of all the produce produced from a particular plot of land. Fallow land in general seems to be fairly disliked in the law code because we have a very particular law stating that if a man leaves his land fallow, his neighbor can give him a formal warning to fortify his property, since apparently fallow land leaves the neighbor at risk of burglary. If a formal warning has been given and the neighbor falls victim to burglary, the owner of the fallow land must restore what's lost. A very telling law is that if a man is found to have harbored a fugitive slave, that man must replace the escaped slave with one of his own. But if the man owns no slaves, then he must pay 15 shekels of silver, apparently the standard rate for a bonded human. A fair bit of slavery was war captives, but another common source of slaves was through debt, and it seems that if a slave says he has paid back his debt through service, and the matter is disputed by the master, then the court shall measure it, and if the slave has paid back double the original debt, then the slave shall be freed. 
the economic laws can get fairly complicated, including a situation in which a master of an estate defaults on taxes but can have an outside party pay for the taxes, but if the situation persists for three years, then the outside party takes possession of the bankrupt estate. But there were also criminal laws, though many parts of the criminal section are missing from this particular code. If a man beats up a pregnant woman and kills the baby, he must pay 30 shekels. If he kills the mother too, then he'll be put to death. If, however, it is merely a slave woman that is struck, the lost fetus is worth only 5 shekels, and we've lost the section that tells us what happens if the slave woman dies, though it's probably a fine. We see that entering an orchard and being caught stealing from it is worth 10 shekels, while cutting down another man's tree in an orchard is worth 20 shekels. Much of the criminal law is compensatory in this way, very similar to what we saw with the laws of Ur-Namu back in the episode King Shulgi's Mailbag. And as almost a guiding principle, there is a law which states if a man accuses another baselessly and cannot prove it, then he shall bear the penalty for the thing which he accused the other man of. We then have an extensive surviving section on family law, which, in a culture where plural marriages are acceptable, quickly becomes something of a mess. Some of the easy ones include if, during a father's lifetime, his daughter becomes one of a variety of priestesses, then on his death his male children shall include the daughter as a legal heir. And if a daughter is not given in marriage while her father is alive, her brothers shall give her in marriage. We have a peculiar law that states, if a man rescues a child from a well, he shall take the child's feet and imprint them on a clay tablet for identification. Surely this was not a common occurrence, one would hope. Some of the really crazy stuff starts when you leave the confines of the nuclear family. If a man's second wife gives him a child, her dowry shall only belong to her children, while on the man's death, the children of both wives shall inherit equally. If a man has a child by both his wife and a slave woman, then the slave woman and all her children shall be freed, but the children of the slave woman are not eligible to inherit. If a man's wife does not bear any children, but a prostitute from the street does, and they always call them that, prostitutes from the street in the law code, then that woman and child shall be given regular rations of grain, oil, and cloth, and the child shall be the man's heir. However, the prostitute is not allowed to reside in the man's house as long as the first-ranking wife is still alive. But it gets better. If a man's first wife loses her attractiveness or becomes paralyzed, she may not be evicted from the house. Likely this happened fairly often in a society like this if there were no laws to stop it. Instead, the husband may take a second wife whose job it will be to support the first wife and bear children. And my favorite from the code... If a young man has relations with a prostitute, and the judges, for whatever reason, order him to never again to return to that prostitute, and if he afterward divorces his wife in a full and legal divorce, he still cannot marry the prostitute. What event caused this to enter the law books, I have no idea. But Isin is not the only city codifying their laws at this point. 
If we go up the Tigris River to the northern city of Eshnuna, there is a surviving law code from about this period that matches up quite nicely with Libet Ishtars. They weren't cribbing off Issen, nor were they subject to them. Rather, the broad outlines of agreement show us that in economic, family, and criminal matters, there was wide agreement throughout Mesopotamia on what was fair and just. Here, too, we see a compensatory criminal system, in which specific damages have specific price tags, typically weighed in silver, with a broken hand or foot being worth 30 shekels, a severed finger or broken collarbone is worth 20 shekels, and less severe injuries are worth a general 10 shekels. Interestingly, in Eshnuna and possibly other places, there is a provision in criminal cases that penalties of between 20 and 60 shekels require a judge to be laid down. Presumably, lesser fines can be assessed by lesser officers, while anything above that is a capital crime. It seems there were no fines greater than 60 shekels, and at that point they would just take your head. And in Eshnuna, all capital cases were put before the king. We also have, from the Eshnuna Codex, some very detailed economic laws, beginning with price controls on many common goods. There is no reason to think that rulers since at least Naram Sin of Akkad have been doing things like this, but it's good to find affirmative proof, and useful for giving us a sense of what typical prices for many goods would have been. One shekel in Eshnuna, if your merchant is obeying the law, could get you 600 silas of barley, 3 silas of fine oil, 12 of normal oil, 15 of lard, 40 of bitumen, which is raw petroleum tar for sealing walls and floors, 360 of wool, or 600 salt, which shows us the relative scarcity and value of these common commodities. More interesting would be to find points of comparison with the laws down in Isim, but honestly, thanks to gaps in both texts, the only direct comparison would be that in Eshnuna, a man caught breaking in and stealing from a home or field shall be fined ten shekels of silver, the exact same penalty leveled in Isim, suggesting that there was broad agreement on appropriate penalties in general. The Eshnuna Codex continues on, however, saying that if a man is found committing burglary in the night time, he'll simply be executed. Note that in neither codex is the idea of prisons ever once considered, nor is corporal punishment or direct enslavement of criminals. There are fines and there are executions, though for sure a man could well fall into debt as the result of fines and then into slavery. When at all possible, the fine is to replace what was lost, perhaps with a punitive increase, such as the law stating, a man gave one shekel to a workman for harvesting, which is the rate given elsewhere in the law for a wage of one month of labor, plus about 30 kilos of grain for allowance. If that man does not keep himself available for work and does not perform the harvest, then the workman shall measure out and deliver ten shekels of silver. When no replacement is possible, such as with bodily injury, the only recourse available is monetary fines. And when the matter is too extreme for fines, such as when a married woman is found in the lap of another man, or when a man abducts another man's wife, there is nothing but death that can be prescribed for that. In fact, 
There is a whole range of possible punishments, which will be explored in depth by later civilizations, but there is a degree to which you have to admire the simplicity of Mesopotamian justice. The actual crime and court investigation could grow complicated, but the punishments were swift and, to the best of their moral compass, proportionate to the crime. In any case, what crimes exist and how severe they are tell us a lot about what is considered possible in society. After all, I rather doubt that even the voluminous American legal code has a provision about a married man divorcing his wife in order to marry a prostitute. Though, on the other hand, it probably does have a provision that matches if a wall is buckling and the authorities so notify the owner of the wall, but he does not reinforce the wall and the wall collapses and causes a death, then it is a capital crime, which we would call criminal negligence today. It tells us about how they thought and how they lived, and in the case of the economic laws, gives us valuable information, such as that an average laborer could expect a wage of one shekel of silver plus about 30 kilograms of grain every month. Next week, we will look at the turbulent end of Lipit Ishtar's reign, and the usurper who will violently overthrow him, and at the rebel king, who will bring the rise of a new power to the region, the city of Larsa. So join us next time for some military action, a violent revolution, and a return of practical men after nearly a century of domination under educated merchant kings. Thank you for listening.